Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 17. That's where we have been. And so far, uh, this has been one of the most, I think, practical chapters in all the book of Proverbs. It just seems like every week we just get uh, some really straightforward, easy life principles to to, to learn and apply. You know, for those of us who, who want great principles to live by, and I've talked to you before about building a, a collection of them, building a, a, a bank account, basically, of biblical principles. You know, these, what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, uh, really through all Proverbs, but uh, have just been really hard to beat. And today, you know, we're going to look at yet another set of verses. And uh, again, more practical principles that we can, uh, we can get into uh, in the Word of God. So, Uh, We're glad that you're here today. We hope that uh, you get a blessing from it. And uh, I want to begin to read here for you in Proverbs chapter 17. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 12 through 17 today. It says this, Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for uh, adversity. Bob Gregg, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the uh, sermon this morning? Father, we just thank you for your son, Lord, sending him to die on that cross for us so that we can sit here today and hear your word so freely. Lord, we pray that we'd be worthy to hear it, and after we hear it, Lord, we pray that we would actually go do these things. Father, open up our hearts and minds to hear what you've got to say to us, and uh, let us be a light that shines in this dark world. Thank you, buddy. Now again, a great set of verses. And I want to add six more principles to your collection today. We're going to take each one of these verses, and each one of them is basically a standalone verse. They're really not connected together as far as what they they lay out, but they're six great impacting principles that we want to talk about today. And verse 12 says, our first one here, our first principle, it says, Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man rather than a fool in his folly. Now, here again, and I love this about the Bible in particular, but the book of Proverbs also. Uh, here's a great truth in life that's wrapped around an illustration so everybody can understand it. Jesus did that all the time in, in the first coming of Christ. He's always using examples he puts in a format that everybody could identify with it. And all the way through the Bible, especially in Proverbs, I think one of, the, one of the beauties of Solomon's wisdom was his ability to take complicated precepts and put them into a simple format that we could all understand it. And I think that that forms for uh, anybody who understands that, the simplicity of the Bible, especially when it comes to identifying with things that we need to identify with. It says, let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man. Now, the point he's trying to make here, and it's a great point, there's nothing more dangerous or will get you killed quicker than messing with a grizzly bear's cubs. 
And, uh, you know, uh, the national parks, they have these drive-through things where you can uh, uh, see the grizzly bears all around the side, you know, and they'll come up to your car and all these things. I remember one time when, when, uh, when I was in, Af- in Africa, we took a, um, took a safari. In fact, we went so far, we almost didn't get back. But anyway, <laughs> you get in this van and you have a guy that takes you through the bush. And when I remember driving around a, a, a corner here and there, was a, and there were three big lions with their cubs just laying right there. I mean, there was elephants and, and everything, you know. It was just incredible. But you go through the national parks in America and, uh, you know, you drive through there and there'll be, uh, there'll be buffalo along the road, you know, and, 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 and bear everywhere. I mean, they're all there, you know, and they tell you, they tell you, stay in your car. They tell you, don't wind down the windows. I mean, these bears look, I get it. They look, and who doesn't like a teddy bear? These bears look the most absolutely cuddlest things on the planet. They got big brown heads. They got big brown eyes. They got big noses. They got really big teeth inside that pretty mountain mouth. Every year, every year, there's somebody that's mauled, maimed, or killed because, hey, honey, get my picture over here with this bear. And it would get killed. Uh, who knows? And I was see till who knows who Tim Treadwell was. Anybody know who Tim Treadwell? You guys do. I, if, what I would I not know? You wouldn't know. Anybody know who Tim Treadwell is? Stand up and tell us who Tim Treadwell was, so everybody knows. He was crazy. Yeah, well, he was, wasn't he, man? <laughs> he was. He, he went and lived among the grizzly bears and, and um, thought of himself as a grizzly bear, and uh, did not turn out well for him. Yeah, Tim Treadwell was a national, a, nas- a naturalist guy, and he actually, he actually thought that he could be one with the grizzlies. And every summer he'd go up to uh, up to Alaska, way back in the in the tundra, way back in the thing there. He'd have somebody have to fly him in. They'd land there, you know, at a lake, and he set up base camp, and he would go up there and he would photograph himself with video cameras. Being with these bears, you know, I mean, the one photograph that I saw that uh, the movie took, the bear is down here, and all of a sudden the bear stands up on its hind leg. That bear is 10 feet tall. It is huge. And he would explain on the camera how you get along with the bears and all this stuff, you know. And he, he was nuts, man. He was crazy as a loony bird. Because he'd been on drugs most of his life and, and wound up one morning after an acid trip and decided he was going to be a bear, I guess. Anyhow, and, and he would go up there and he actually, he did it for like 12 seasons, I think. And then uh, the 13th season, lucky 13 for him, the, the plane comes up there to pick him up and uh, uh, he's not there. They go up to the base camp and uh, uh, the guy immediately sees that uh, somebody has... It really destroyed the camp, and there's blood everywhere and all this stuff. And so he goes down, and he calls the park rangers, and they all come up, and they find the bear. And it was, a, again, it was a, it was a big mother bear with her cubs. Um, they shot the bear, cut her open, and, of course, there he was. He, you know, she, he had, he, she had eaten. And the bad thing was he had a girlfriend that was goofy as he was, and she was with him. She was dessert. But it, it was an incredible thing, and they called him the grizzly man. The bears called him dinner. <laughs> it's, just, it's just that simple. And, and he, that was in 2003. And we're not talking about a long time ago. But he was certifiably nuts.
And he would talk to the bear and he would say, he, would, he said, he said, if, if a bear ever kills me, while that bear is eating me, I will tell that bear how much I love him. Nobody recorded those final moments, but I, 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 I seem to think that probably he was, his mind was somewhere else. But anyway, honestly, let's, it's, could we talk here? It, what, there's all kinds of ways you can die. But I got to say, probably the one of the most terrifying ways that you could ever die was to be eaten alive. I mean, somebody asked me one time as a Christian martyr, would you have, rather have your head cut off or be burned at the stake? And I said, well, I, well, I think I'd rather be burned at the stake. And they said, why is that? And I said, well, a hot steak's better than a cold chop any day of the week. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'll be using that all week long. I don't want to hear it. I remember back in 1975, we were still living in Ohio at that point, we went to see the movie Jaws. Now, Jaws to you today, with, oh, hey, with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Silence of the Lambs and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty lame today. But I want to tell you something. In 1975, we went to see that movie. I had, it was the most terrifying thing I ever saw in my life. They said there, don't go in the water. 41 years later, I have not went into the water. There's no way. That opening scene where that woman, that girl is swimming out there, you know, and kicking back and all these things, you know, and then you hear that music. And all of a sudden, that thing comes up and grabs her, boy, and she's screaming and yelling, and everybody on the beach is drunk, and, and, and he's pulling her back and forth, and she hangs on to that Bowie and praying to God, and all the next thing you know, down she goes, man. All I needed to see. I have not taken a bath since. I shower. <laughs> but, but you know, that's really, today in our world, that's really the draw for all of you freaks out there who like The Walking Dead. Who's going to get eaten this week? And it's a, it's a, it's a, I should say all of us freaks. Uh, and that's exactly the way it is, you know. I remember one time that uh, uh, the, the guy that was married to the, uh, what's his name? The guy that was married to the girl that got pregnant, uh, the, the, Rick and Lori. Huh? Rick and Lori. No, no. After she died, the, the, the guy that... The, who? Glenn. Glenn. Who? Glenn. 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 Yeah, yeah. Glenn and Maggie. <laughs> remember remember when, when he was with that guy in that dumpster and he fell off and every, we all thought that he got eaten? Because it, the last thing it showed was his face. And, and everybody, I mean... Flags were flying at half-mast across Kansas City the next day. Incredible. It's incredible. I'm telling you. And I, you know, and I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, man, it's a, it's a thing where that, that, is a, that has to be a tough way to go. But in the Bible, in our text here, the text says that there's something that is more terrifying and deadly than that. And boy, what a great contrasting illustration and comparison does he make. And that is the thing that's worse than getting eaten alive by a mother bear who is ticked off because you're trying to mess with her cubs, the Bible says, is a fool that is in his folly. That's incredible. That's incredible. 
You see, the fool in his folly is a man or a woman who is on a course to total destruction. And it's a great contrast to illustration. The fool in their folly will be a man or a woman who is headed the wrong way in life, with the wrong motive in life, set out to do the wrong things in life. And in the process of doing that, will, as we saw last week, rebel against every principle uh, in life and will wind up, as the Bible says in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, sowing to the wind and then reaping uh, the whirlwind. And the illustration is real simple. It really is. The bear, robbed of her whelps, will get you killed because you have violated a fundamental law of nature. You don't intrude into a mother, whether it be a lion or a bear or wherever. You don't intrude into their world, even though you think you can. You violate a fundamental principle and a law of nature. But the fool, he gets destroyed because he violates the fundamental laws of the Bible and God. And just where the laws of nature will get you killed by violating them and think you're an exception to the rule that this bear likes you, when it comes to the principles of the Word of God, we do the same thing. And in that, we become a fool. That we think we are an exception to the rule that the principle doesn't apply to us. Because when a fool in his folly goes his or her way, they get swallowed up. Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, talks about our adversary, the devil, going about uh, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I don't know if you get a chance. It's, I hadn't seen it for years, and it's a great, great movie. And it's on TV now. It's called The Ghost in the Darkness. How many have seen that? Great movie. Great movie. It's a true story. It's about uh, around the turn of the century in, in Africa where a guy is going over there, uh, an American guy or a British guy, to build a bridge. And he must have three or four hundred workers there laying railroad track, and they're going to build a bridge over this river. Well, there's two marauding lions that are just real bloodthirsty man-eaters. And the story revolves around that the lions start coming down and, and kill them. I mean, they're, they're brazen, boy. They come right into the camp. They smelled, they had a hospital there where people were hurt. They smelled all the blood. One night they just came right out of the hospital and made a smorgasbord out of it. I mean, it's incredible. The guy brings in another hunter and with two of them wind up killing both lions. Those lions, by the way, are in the, are in the uh, uh, historical natural museum in Chicago. Uh, that's actually where they're at. It's a true story. I think before it was all said and done, there were 200 people that those lions had taken before they finally got them. And that Bible says that your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he will swallow you up and eat you alive. Now, going back to the bear. The bear can only kill and devour you. And this is where the tragedy and the contrast between the two is so great. The bear uh, that you mess with can only kill you. Uh, but a man or a woman in their folly will not only get killed themselves and the devil devour them, but anybody that's around them or connected with them. You see, it won't just destroy them. It won't just swallow them up. It'll swallow up their families in time. It'll swallow up their kids in time. It'll swallow up their friends. Their whole life will get swallowed up and they'll either die physically or they're going to die spiritually. Spiritually. 
And it all comes down to a total disregard for fundamental truths of nature in the case of the bear or the fundamental truths of the Bible that will get you killed and swallowed up every time. You know what? Sooner or later, whether it's in messing with the bears like Treadwell did or messing with God like we all do, sooner or later, the law of averages is going to catch up to you. It's just that simple. And uh, it's an incredible thing. And what a great practical uh, illustration he puts into there. All right, let's look at our second principle here. Verse 13. Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. Now, if there was ever a piece of advice that uh, that you see uh, in Proverbs at work, uh, it will be, uh, in the ministry, it will be, yeah, it will be this principal proverb right here. You know, over the years, uh, I've had a number of young men that uh, have uh, went out to the ministry that, that I work with and helped them get established. And uh, they went out and took churches around the country or, or wherever. And, uh, you know, before they go, I always sit down and I always make sure that they understand four or five fundamental basic things that's going to have to really be the crux of what they do, no matter where they go. I'll walk them through four or five, maybe six, absolute principles that they have to have in place and have to live by for them to be successful and, and to ever make it. And, uh, and, uh, and one of them uh, is this one right here. And the best piece of advice I could give any guy going into the ministry or any person who wants to work with people uh, would be right here. And uh, in the people ministry, we had our, our fall first session yesterday. You can see now all you new people that came in, how that is an impacting thing and will change your life and how you view working with people. I mean, boy, we got into some great stuff yesterday. But I, we've talked about that uh, many, many times uh, over the course because these people are, are working with people all the time and they're helping me and doing things and we get into some pretty heavy-duty stuff sometimes and, uh, and I, I have to prepare them for that. And I tell them, it's like I would tell every young kid going into the ministry, be prepared to receive evil for the good that you do. I mean, it's true in life, but boy, it's true in the ministry. I've seen guys that have put themselves into, uh, I knew a friend of mine one time that, that worked at Walmart, and he'd been a manager there for like 20 years, and uh, he really took his job seriously, and he made the place a better place, took care of the employee, did everything. After about 20 years, when he had reached a pay, a pay scale, you know what that? They just come in and let him go and put somebody else in at half the price. It happens in the world. It happens all the time. It really does. It, it, it just takes place uh, every place that you find it. And you're going to find, and I, I'm telling you right now, when you get into the ministry and you start working with people, you need to be prepared that people are going to return evil for the good that you try to do in police work. Now, there's a lot of things that are really dangerous for policemen today, but for a long time, and maybe there's still rates up there, I don't know, but for a long time, you know what was the most dangerous call for a police officer to make? Domestic violence. Where you roll up on a house where a husband and wife are killing each other and, and going at it with each other. You try to go in and you're not there to arrest anybody. You're just trying to there to, to, to put, a, put, a, put an end to it. Try to talk some sense into them. Try to get them separated to cool off. You know how many police officers get beat up or get to the hospital or get shot because once you get there and you try to do some good in this thing, they turn on you. 
In ministry, it's the same thing. Now, you'll take somebody that's been beaten up by the world and you'll start to work with them and you'll pour yourself into them and, and uh, they'll get to a point uh, where they'll stop growing or, or whatever and, and, and suddenly you become the problem. It doesn't matter how disjointed and messed up their life had been. It doesn't matter the terrible bad choices that they have made all of their life. It doesn't matter what bad marriage they put themselves in or what bad situation they put themselves in. That ceases to matter anymore. You're going to find in the ministry that there are people that you try to help. The proverb is so clear. It's so true. I don't know of another truth in the Bible that you see at work all the time when you start getting into the ministry. And uh, pretty soon, you're the bad guy. You're the problem. And it's seemingly like they they have, you know, complete loss of memory of of what they've done and where they're at. And they wind up many times. I know you have dealt with that. Many times uh, I put you to work with somebody and you tried to do the best you could and you did a great job. And and sometimes, you know, it it bothers you. I get it. Especially if you're kind of young at this and haven't been shot at a lot of times, it, 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 it bothers you. And you've come to me and you said, Bob, have I done anything wrong? Should I have done anything different? And I tell you, you know what? You did it exactly the way you were trained to do it. You did exactly the way the Bible said to do it. The bottom line is simply this, welcome to the ministry. And there's going to be people that uh, they're going to reward your good with evil. It just becomes an accepted thing in life. There isn't a church in this country. There isn't a pastor in this country. There isn't a personal worker, a deacon, an elder in any church across this country that is worth their salt, that do the work of the God with the Bible that doesn't face this. It's just the way that it is. You know, I've worked with families, and, and I've been through them for their hard times. Uh, I've, I've been through there when they went through a divorce, you know, and they had really uh, bad problems. I've helped them through their marital issues when they were struggling. And, uh, you know, I, many times they've lost a loved one. Many times it was a child. Many times it was a husband or a wife or a, a teenager or even if it was a grandma or grandpa or a mother and a father, you know. Many times I did the funeral. Many times the church helped them out and did everything that we could do for them. I've been there for them in their hour of need. Helped them with times of people didn't have enough food. This church made sure that they did. Didn't have enough gas in their car to get the church or get the work. We made sure that they did. I couldn't have enough money to pay their bills, and we didn't want to let them go down the tube. So we helped them uh, where, where, where we could. We've worked with their kids. We've tried to pull it all together. And at some point, you know what happens? Your good gets rewarded with evil, and you become the bad guy. Make friends with it. Understand it. It's the way that it is. I had a lady one time, this has been years ago. She came into my office and she said, I got a boy. And she says, I hear you're really good with, with, with kids. And I said, well, I, I'll do what I can do for you. She says, well, here's my son. He's 14, 15 years old, I remember. He's running with the wrong crowd. He's smoking. He's drinking. He, I don't know if he's doing marijuana or not, but I would believe he probably is. But I know this. He's rebellious. He won't do anything. He, he, he's really a mess. And I need your help. And I said, well, I'd be glad to help you. I said, what's his name? So I took the kid. he come over to see me. I didn't even meet him in my office. I took him someplace to eat. And we just had a lunch together or dinner. I don't remember what it was. And I just talked with him. And I became his friend. And I began to open up to me. And he told me about the issues he had had, you know, and situations at home. And he didn't have a real good father relationship. And so I, I helped that kid. I worked with that kid. I got that kid coming to church, got him in his Bible. I got him his first Bible. I worked with him, got him going. I mean, that kid, 
He was at Bible study. He was a Sunday morning. He was a Sunday night. He was at everything. He got into the youth group and got really going and really plugged in. And that kid was just going great guns. After about five or six months, his mother come back in to see me. She's upset with me. She said, my boy isn't the same boy that he was. You've changed him. She says, all he wants to do now is come to church and be in his Bible. Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> she said, I think he's, I, it's like he's in a cult. There it goes again. And I said to her, I said, you know what? Did you like it? Oh, here was the thing. She says, I think he's overdosed on the Bible. And I said to her, would you rather have him overdose on the Bible than what he was overdosing on the first time you came in to see me? And I thought to myself, there it is. There it is. That's exactly the way it is. My number one rule that I keep in my mind doing the work of the Lord is simply this. No good deed will go unpunished. I'm telling you. Listen, when you start to work with, and I'll tell you why, just so you know. When you start to work with people, you're going to see the very worst of human nature come out of people. When you just talk to people like this or have a casual friendship or relationship, you know what? Everything's okay. But when you start to sit down and get into the Bible and they start to open up, I want to tell you something. When you start to work with people, you will see the very worst of human nature come out of people. The depravity of man is never more clear when you open up the word of God and you start to deal with them about their problems. The core root of their very issues will spill out all over everything. Back in Judges chapter 3, great story, great illustration. You had a guy who was the king of Moab. His name was Eglon. He's a picture of an unsaved man. And uh, you had another guy whose name was, uh, 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 was uh, Ehud. And Ehud went in to see him one day. And Ehud went in there with a dagger. And the Bible says that, uh, that uh, Eglon was a very heavy guy. And he goes up to him and he says, I have a message from the Lord. And the guy says, uh, Eglon says, uh, well, what is it? And he says, well, I, I, it's so special, I got to whisper in your ear. And the guy said, well, come on up. I've always wanted a word from God. And so he went up there and he took that dagger because Eglon was the king of Moab and this guy was going to be the deliverer of Israel. He stuck that dagger right in his stomach. The Bible says that the flesh closed around the hasp of that knife that he couldn't pull it out. But then the Bible says when he stuck him with that dagger, the dirt came out. Now, I've always looked at that as a great practical application when you deal with people with the Bible. Now, I know the Bible says the, it's a sharp two-edged sword, and he here it was a small two-edged dagger, so I'm assuming he only had a New Testament. <laughs> Be that as it may, when you get close to somebody and you stick them with the sword, the dirt's going to come out. And it's going to come out. Listen, human nature is the most depraved, despicable, wicked thing that you'll ever encounter. And it will turn on you in a heartbeat and bite you. It's totally unpredictable. And, uh, you know, over the years, 
you know, over the years, I've had, uh, I have had men that I have trained and, you know, I've, I've, I've spent hours with them and, and many of them, I, I won to Christ or they got saved and they grew up in my ministry. And, you know, you, you get to a point and then for whatever reason, uh, they turn on you. I've had them put a secret plan. I had a guy one time that, that, that came to me and he said, I want to start a Bible study. And I said, well, good. You, that's good. Well, unbeknownst to me, he started a Bible study, Carter picking select people. The Bible study in his mind, his whole concept was he was going to take those people and start a church. And, you know, and when I finally confronted him, this has been years ago, when I finally confronted him with it, he did. He wound up taking those people and other people, started a church. And you know what? That's probably been 25, 26 years ago. Today, keep this in mind because I'm going to come back to the end of this verse. He's lost his church. He's lost his kids. He's lost his wife. He's lost everything. Keep that in mind. I had a guys one time to come in and wanted to help me in my ministry. Good deal. They get some guys together. I remember one guy in particular put a workout program together early in the morning for, for guys. I thought it was a great thing. He had 30, 40, 50 guys there. That was a great thing. So I found out when he got them there, it was the old Absalom at the gate thing, you know. Well, you know, Bob doesn't do this the way he should. And if I was king, this is what I would do, you know. Hey, it happens all the time. It, it, it happens all the time. It's the way it is. That verse is so true. I mean, I've seen them come to the place where they get their little secret plans together and, and want to take people out of the church to start a church. Hey, they couldn't build a church if their life depended on it. The only way they can do it is by stealing somebody else's. Every church in the country, every pastor in the country, every, everywhere you go, this principle, this proverb is true. It's true. And hey, I've, 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 boy, have I seen some of their wives too. I ain't kidding you. I mean, to be the most vicious, slanderous witches on this side of the lake of fire, man, I ain't kidding you. Had a guy one time, and I won't tell you who it is. He said, well, I got some problems. He said, and he was, in his mind, he was already going to start his church. And he said, well, he said, I want you to know, one of my boys saw one of the guys taking the offering take money out of the plate. My, my boys are not coming back to church. I said, your boy hasn't been back to church for a year and a half. <laughs> I, he said, honestly, probably 240, 50 people here today does anybody think anybody's going to pass the plate? And, thank you. Thank you. Or, or oh, this will be it. Oops! <laughs> I'll get it. Look up there! <laughs> this is the same guy who said, my kids won't go to church because they don't like your church, so I'm going to go start my own church. You know what happened? They don't go to his church either. <laughs> I'm telling you. I've heard some of the most unbelievable, horrific lies about some of you people because people get to a point, they don't want to do what's right anymore and they want to blame you. I had a guy one time say, or a girl one time say, well, so-and-so, you know, I just, I, I just, I don't like the way she handled me and this and that and this and that and do all this stuff here. And I said to her, I said, you know what, sweetheart, that girl has probably put more people in this church She's worked with, I don't know how many people in this church. 
And the bottom line is, everybody else loved it, you don't. See, there comes a time, you've got to realize it, that there's going to be people out there that you're going to do the very best you can. You're going to do the very best you can. And they're going to return evil for good. I've seen people take everything that you would give them. They wouldn't even know that they had a King's Age Bible if you hadn't told them. They'll take everything you give them, and then at some point, they'll just turn their back and stick it to you. And I, it's one of those things where I look at that, and you know what I say? Welcome to the ministry. You're never going to change it, so you might as well learn to enjoy it. Be under no illusion that this verse is absolutely true. God's people, many of them, will reward your evil for their, your good. And I, I tell you, in our church here, I know we got some guys that, that really hold people accountable, and I really appreciate that. Many of them are in the people ministry. Not all of them are. Some of them have been doing it for a long time. But I want to tell you something. We got some ladies that are tough too, boy. I mean, they won't cut you any slack at all. You start dancing with them, and you'll find out that they are Baptists. They do not dance. <laughs> you know, in ministry and dealing with people, it takes a special kind of person to be able to do it on a, on a really good level. Because you've got to have a very thick hide. You got to be wrapped in asbestos, so to speak, thick, because sometimes it can get tough, man. And I will guarantee you that there's not a pastor or a deacon or a worker or a church in this country that will go two or three years into the work, if that long, uh, that you won't run into this kind of people. I worked with Truman Dollar for 20 years when I first came to Kansas City. I learned so much from him, and he told me one time, and I'll never forget it, one of the best pieces of advices that anybody ever gave me. He said, Bob, you know, he says, people never remember what you did for them yesterday. All they want to know is what you're going to do for them today. And boy, that is so true. That is so true. Now, here's the answer to all this. The aspect of rendering evil for good will always be, in my mind, defeated by you just taking the opposite, and that is reward good for evil. My second rule in the ministry, and boy, you better get this one down. Don't take it personal. Amen. This is not, you're, you're not working for yourself here. You're working for the Lord. You're not doing it because sometimes because we, we're the actual agent that God uses in dealing with people, we get the idea that it's really us doing it. You're just the vessel by which God is using it. The real problem they have isn't with you. The real problem they have is with God. But they're not going to go out and take their clothes off on a hill on a moon, full moon night and scream at God. At least some of them probably do. But they're going to take it out on you because you're all they see of God and you represent God. I've always thought of that poor guy, Simon Serenium, who helped carry the cross for the Lord when he went to Calvary. Don't you know that when they threw him in the mix... And he picked up whatever end of the cross he picked up and helped that Lord go to Calvary. Don't you know in the, in the fervor of that mob that hated God so much and hated Christ so much, who were throwing rocks and bottles and cans and spitting and throwing things and beating and whipping, don't you know that it got all over Simon and Serenian too? You cannot bear the cross with the Lord without taking the brunt of people hating him. 
And you better get that. You better get it. You better understand it. Went back one time back there in 1 Samuel, in the first eight chapters. Samuel's going to the nation of Israel and they're saying, hey, God's got a king for you. And they say, well, we don't want God's king. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel says, well, I know that. But you're not supposed to be like the other nations. God's got a great king for you, David. He said, we want who we want. Samuel goes into the God and he says, well, you know what, Lord? I, well, I tell you, I'm really bummed out. You know, I thought this prophet job was going to work out, but I'm not sure it's going to. You know, I went and told them, you know, about the king you had for them, and they don't want it. And God, he said, I'm just really discouraged. You know, I thought the ministry was going to be, you know, on TV and all those things. And God says, Samuel, what in the world's wrong with you? What are you, what are you blubbering about? They have rejected you. They've rejected me. And when you get into the ministry and you start working and you see this proverb come to fruition in your life, that you have people that you have invested your life in, try to do everything the right way, and they turn on you because they reward your good with evil, keep it in perspective. Don't take it personal. It isn't your job. You're working for him. And he'll take care of it. Man said to me one time, he said, boy, they sure are clobbering you. And I said, yep, this goes with the territory. He said, why don't you ever say anything back? And I said, honestly, because that would make me just like them. And I never want to be them. Sometimes you just got to be bigger than the problem and realize that's just the way it is, man. That's just the way it is. You know, I've learned something. When people slander you or lie about you, when people say things that aren't true about you in the immediate, and you don't have, you don't stick up for yourself, nobody else necessarily sticks up for you, you just take it on the chin. You know what I've learned? When nobody else will tell the truth, time will tell the truth. Wait a year. Wait two years. Wait till you see where your life is at, what God has done with you, where their life is at, and the cesspool that they live in. The ongoing problems, the ongoing issues, the divorces, the this, the that. And your life, God just keeps blessing you. You see, it's the things that God does with you that gives you the satisfaction of knowing no matter what anybody says, you're doing what God wants you to do. And you get the, when you have understanding, you look at their life getting more miserable, your life getting better. Now, how in the world am I going to trade that for that? And you're not. You're not. You're just not. Now, look at the last part of the verse. I told you to remember our buddy back here. <clears throat> the last part of the verse says, and evil shall not depart from his house. Hey, I've seen him do evil. I've seen him reward evil for good to people. And I've watched it, that thing destroy their family. I've watched their boys or their girls be a mess. I've watched their boys have one illegitimate child after another. I've watched them be into drugs. I've watched them be some of the biggest fornicators you ever saw in your life. I've watched their, their daughters just get in one mess after the other. And they stand there and pretending that they're right and everybody else is wrong. You know what? That verse is true. Evil shall not depart from their house. The hardest thing for a person to do in life, and I'm speaking from experience here. <clears throat> the hardest thing for a person to do in life is that when they want to do something so desperately and they do it wrong, and then they have to face the reality that they're on their own and God is not part of it, that's tough. When you build yourself up that this is God and we and him are doing this and you're doing that, 
and reality, it's you all by yourself, and God isn't 100 million light years around it, and you get into that thing, and you got to, it's like breathing life into a corpse laying on a slab, trying to keep that thing alive, because God isn't around anywhere. Hey, I've seen him four or five years after starting a church. You got nobody. Nothing ever changes. You're going nowhere. Week after week, you could call roll call of your church in a back in a Volkswagen with the seats ripped out in the back. And they never get it. They never get it. You know why? I talked about it last week. You can beat a fool with a hundred stripes and they'll never get it because he's a fool. The greatest punishment, in my mind anyhow, the greatest punishment that can ever be afflicted on, on anybody is when in our minds we're so right in what we do, but we're really wrong. And then God doesn't go along. Absolutely no hand of God on what we do. And you see the foolish ways of the decisions that you've made, destroying everything in your life, and you're just miserable. You're just miserable. And what even adds to the misery? If every morning you went to work, and your car had four flat tires, every morning, nobody punctured them, it's just, while you slept, God took the air out of your tires. And when you walk out there every morning to go to work, God is good to you and left you a hand pump. <laughs> How many days would it take for you to get so weary, so worn out, so disgusted with a car that every morning you have to fill the tires with air before it'll go anywhere because there's nothing in it as far as air is concerned? I'd say about a week. Well, can you imagine what a life would be like for a Christian who goes through life on four flat tires all the time? And all you get out of it is what air you put in it? I used to love gas stations when they had real gas stations. There ain't no gas stations anymore. They're all quickie trips. <laughs> used to pull into a gas station and a guy come out with sleeveless shirt, big tattoos on his arm, and he'd say, what do you need? Well, I need some air. Right over there. And he had them big air guns that went into the compressor. And you put them on the thing and it, you pulled the handle down and it showed you how much air you were putting in. Well, that's an air deal. You go to Quick Trip and need air, you put 75 cents in it and there's a little midget in there that blows through a straw. <laughs> and he doesn't have very big lungs, I'm going to tell you. It's stupid. And when you're Christian life and whatever you think you're going to do for God, when you do it your way and don't do it his way, or in this text here, you, you hurt the ones who have tried to help you. Read the verse. It says, if you give evil for good, you're not going to get away with it. Read it. Doesn't matter what you think. Read it. He says, it will not depart from your house. And every day of your life, you're going to live on a dead-end street. Nothing is going to work for you. Everything is going to be like going out in the morning, and you've got to keep blowing life into what you think is real when it isn't. And boy, I've seen guys go out and start churches the wrong way and see them do things all my life. And the rest of their life, they just have to inflate it every time. 
God does nothing for them. They get nothing out of it. And after a while, they're just miserable. And you know what? When they get to that point in their life, they still cannot accept that they made a mistake. It'll be somebody else's fault. I've had guys went out and start churches, and I told them they shouldn't go out and start churches, and they fell flat on their face after four or five years. And you know what? Somehow, some way, some shape, some form, that was my fault. I'm waiting for the FBI to show up at my door any time that 9-11 was my fault. When you get into the ministry and you start putting out the Word of God and you start really impacting people's lives, you see the worst of people. You do. We say, well, what are you staying it for? Well, I'm going to get to that at the end. There's a reason you stay in it. And the second worst thing about after not having the blessings of God in your life or the hand of God on what you're doing will be pretending you're okay when deep down inside you know you're not. You ever really been out of, and I know most of you haven't been, but you ever really been out of fellowship with God? Oh, you have? Okay, good. And I'm talking to the right people here. I thought I'd have to go across the street. (laughs) Tim's Pizza over here. You know how miserable you are? I'm not done yet. Wait, I want a big ending here on it. You know how miserable you are when you have to go to church and be around people who are right with God? You know how hard it is to say praise the Lord when praise the Lord is the farthest thing from what you're thinking? When somebody comes up and says, man, we had a great time. So-and-so got saved last night. And you got to give that fake. That's really good. You're miserable. The most miserable thing in the world is to pretend everything is okay when you and God know it's not. It just is. And, 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 And we actually think, because we're so foolish, we actually think that we could just go on in life blowing up that whatever we're putting air into and bringing, giving it life and, and going against everything and, and it just makes you more miserable. You'll see some guy over here that just growing and growing and you get an attitude because of the fact that, uh, well, you know, why, is, why are they, why, well, God, why are you, and the answer is so simple. God in here. He's somewhere else. And in your mind and your illusion, you're pretending he is. And you got to do everything to make it happen when when God's in it, you don't do anything. It just happens. Now look at our third principle. Verse 14. It says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, cease off contention before it be meddled with. Now here again, a great principle of life. And he's simply saying this. Big problems will always start with little ones that don't get fixed. I used to have a, our old house back in Ohio, used to, it was really old when we got it, and it, it, you could have turned the basement into, a, into a, a swimming pool. Every time we got a heavy rain, it was flooded. We had these old stone walls that had been there probably for, Lord knows, I don't know how long. And uh, it, it, it was just terrible. It had leaks everywhere. I actually remember standing there one time when it was raining, trying to patch all the holes. And I'm looking at the wall. I ain't kidding you. I'm looking at the wall. And all of a sudden, I see this little... I had just put this putty in there that was supposed to seal it, you know. It's, it's a rip-off. I'll just tell you right now. 
You're just, just looking for rip-off putty because that's what it is. And I'm washing it, and all of a sudden I see this little trickle come down the wall. And I'm thinking, oh, boy. And then the little trickle comes out a little stronger. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, here we go. And then the, the thing that I put in popped out and hit me right in the chest, and it, it was a full-blown drinking fountain at that point in time. But I thought to myself, you know, that's what the verse is saying. In life, when you get the big problems on the end, those big problems started out as a trickle. They started out with something that you could fix. You know, I don't know what your worst nightmare is tonight. Maybe you don't have any. But I have people out there that do. And I deal with them all the time. And I don't know, I don't care what it is. The biggest problem somebody has that is monumental that they think they can't get past. And maybe they can't. I will tell you this. It all started with just a little bit of trickle of it coming out when they could have fixed it and they didn't. Back in years ago, they used to have a saying. For a want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. They're simply saying that the whole thing started with a horseshoe nail that held the shoe on, and it all went downhill from there. My mama used to say, stitch in nine, saves time. Stitch in time, save nine. Meaning, if you got a hole in your sock, stitch it now, because by tomorrow your whole foot will be sticking out the end of it and you have to throw the sock away. <laughs> All issues that we have in life that get out of control will start with a small thing that we could have corrected and fixed. You know, I've dealt with a lot of marriages over the years and a lot of problems in marriages. And it, you know what? Bad marriages and problems in marriage usually start with just one bad choice. Sometimes it's just one bad choice of a word. You can go along and get along pretty good and then one person will say just one thing and if that person isn't willing or smart enough to deal with it when they say it, you know where it goes. I had a woman one time and she got a divorce from her husband and nothing I could do to fix it. And I, I talked with her one time and I said, you know what? I said, there was a lot of flying here. By the time I got into this, it was, you know, we'd been four or five years of just terrible stuff. And I said, but what, what was the original thing that caused this before. I said, there has to be a cause and effect here. There has to be, I mean, he's not a bad guy and you're not a bad woman. But there has to be something here. I know things get out of control. What was the one thing that happened that led to everything else that could have been fixed? She said, you know what it was? It was so stupid, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Bob. I said, what was it? She says, procrastination. He never did what I asked him to do. One little thing like procrastination building over four, five, six, seven years. Have you done that yet, honey? No, I haven't. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And everything that she asked him to do, whether it was with the kids, whether it was this, whether it was that, he never did it. That one little thing that could have been fixed led to her getting hooked up with somebody else, getting a divorce, end of story. It's an incredible thing. And that was years ago. But it happens all the time. You know, 99% of the time, uh, you know, uh, one little issue uh, that you could work on, that you could get fixed and make it work, because you don't. Bible says in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, that the little foxes that spoil the vine, the little things in life. 
You know, you talk about bitterness. You know what? I've seen people who are really bitter in life. Oh, they were bitter. They really had some bitter. You know, bitterness is such a stupid thing when you stop and think about it. You know what bitterness is like? Bitterness is like me taking poison and hope it's going to kill you. The person you hate or you're bitter against, they're having the time of their life. They're not affected. They don't even know it. You're walking around brooding, being bitter about that. It's, it's simply like, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take cyanide and I'll show you, it'll kill you. Bitterness is too. But you know where bitterness starts? Bitterness in anybody's heart, no matter how bad it gets, bitterness starts because one person wouldn't forgive one thing that happened to them and forget it. And they just carry it around and carry it around and it picks up legs and it picks up this and pretty soon. Oh, the verse is so true. Verse is a great verse. It's a great verse. Not the big things in life that get you, just the little things that turn into big things when they don't get dealt with. All right, look at verse 15. Fourth principle. He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just. They both are an abomination to the Lord. Now the verse as it stands, and as all of these verses are, just so I haven't said anything about this, but the verse as it stands is basically dealing with the Antichrist and tribulation period and, and all of that time period with Israel. You know, going back to uh, verses 12 and 13, a fool and his folly and a man that justifies the wicked. Doc, just so you know that. But this will go along with, with uh, where our, our, our country is that we talked about last week. You know, we live at a time in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says that good called evil and evil called good. Most of you don't remember who Paul Harvey was. Okay, you do. Thank you very much. I stand corrected. Now, I've got bitterness in my heart, so I've got to deal with it. Paul Harvey was a, was a commentator. And he was a saved man, great Christian. In 1965, if you ever, you can Google it. I was going to read it to you today, but I, I just didn't, I didn't have time to do it. You can go on and Google it. 1965, he did a radio broadcast saying, if I were the devil. And in that broadcast, he says, if I were the devil, this is how I would destroy America. This was 1965. And if you were, listen to it today, you will hear in everything that he said has come true in America. Incredible. The guy has some tremendous insight. He was a great Christian. Loved the Lord. And he has some tremendous wisdom on things. Incredible. And he actually said, without using the verse, that there was a come a day in America when good would be called evil and evil would be called good. And that's where we're at today. He actually said that there would be a day when people would justify the wicked and condemn the just. And we do today. You know, a couple of weeks ago or last week, somebody asked a question in Bible study, I think it was two-thirds ago, out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, about ye are the soul of the earth. And I talked about how that the preservation of all things uh, is simply by the Word of God. No nation, and I've told you this before, no nation in the history of the world that had the Word of God ever lasted 200 years after they got rid of it. And you know, we get so caught up in ball games and all the things that we do in our life that we don't stop and consider those things. But you know, you, you know what? Try to find Czechoslovakia on a map. Gone. Not even there. Czechoslovakia has ceased to exist. Yet there was a time under John Hess, when the, John Huss, that the whole country of Czechoslovakia believed that book and was in saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. How did it get from that point to where it is today where it doesn't exist? You take Germany. How did Germany get from Martin Luther to Adolf Hitler? In just 200 short years, 300 short years. 
How did England ever go from the nation that the sun never set on the British soil to now an eighth-rated, ninth-rated nation, bankrupt, but nothing? How did America ever get from the greatest nation it ever was in 1776 that when they put the Constitution together, the Declaration of Independence, they came back and said it doesn't have enough references to God in it, put some more in it, and they said the Founding Fathers, we can never forget what God did. How did we get from that to the place now that not only have we forgot what God had done, we don't want to remember what God had done? The answer is simple. We've lost our, lost our preserving the Word of God. A nation, any nation that condemns men like Billy Sunday, and he's laughed about today. Men like Paul Harvey, who people take in stride and don't take him seriously. He's dead now. Guys like Jerry Falwell, who despite whatever, he formed the moral majority to try to fight and keep morality in this country. Men like Ian Paisley. You don't even know who Ian Paisley is. He was from um, uh, uh, Ireland over there in the British Isles, and he was a great staunch believer in the King James Bible, fought against the Irish Republican Army and the Catholic Church over there in North Ireland for years. And you know what? When he tried to come to this country, I heard him preach one time uh, in Kansas City. I, I, he came to, came to the church, and I heard him preach. Great preacher. And he couldn't get in the country. He had a tough time getting in the country. They let, the, they let all of the anarchists in, but they wouldn't let Ivan Paisley in the country because of the fact he was too controversial. He got in. Places like the organization, like the NRA. People like Charles Stanley. People like J. Frank Norris. Or any preacher or church who believes in the final authority of the Bible and speaks the truth about what's wrong with America. When a nation, any nation, condemns men like that and then justifies men like Martin Luther King, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Bill Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Gay Pride Week, a Harry Reid and the crowd that has reduced God to a nothing and threw him out of everything in, in our society, in our country. Amen. That nation is now abominable. He said it. It's abominable because it's lost all sense of morality. All sense of decency. And it's in total apostrophe. And he says, justifying the wicked and condemning the just. Look at verse 16. First principle. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? Now, I'm sure there's a lot of applications that we can spin this off of, but let me just get cut to the chase here. This is your Bible colleges. This is your modern day churches. Plain and simple. This is you paying money to learn the Bible. This is you paying a tuition of $100,000 a year to learn a book that God gave you freely. This is trying to get God's wisdom by putting money on the line like they did in Acts chapter 8, verse 18 with Simon the sorcerer when he saw the apostles do these great miracles. He brought money to them and said, give me this power. And they had no certain term told him what he could do with his money. That'll be in the new translation that comes out. <laughs> churches that charge for their classes. Churches that charge for professional services. You have a problem, you go to the church, they send you to somebody on their staff that's a professional, and you pay $40, $50 an hour to somebody to solve your problem with a book that God gave them freely. You see, the key to learning your Bible is your heart attitude. How do you charge people for what God has given you for nothing? 
the desire of your heart to study and to show yourself approved unto God. You know, the greatest verse in the Bible on you learning the Word of God, and I've given this to you before, the greatest single verse in the Bible that is the prerequisite and the key to learning your Bible is found in Luke chapter 24, verse 45. And it's simply just a statement, but it's a powerful statement. He says this, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Let me tell you something. You can have all the money in the world and you can pay somebody all the money in the world to teach you the Bible, but if God's Holy Spirit doesn't open up your understanding, you ain't getting squat. It isn't, it isn't about how much money you got or where you go to school or how much you pay to get it. The real key to you learning the Bible is your attitude of heart how much you love it. Putting the Word of God into your life and into your heart. It's your attitude that determines your altitude with God, not your aptitude. And I'll say it again, God's program for you to learn the Bible is, is a local New Testament church. I say it all the time. And if you're in a church that won't fulfill that for you, then you need to find one that will. Just that simple. I had a call from a guy this week, and, and I knew this was true, but it just blows my mind. I had a call from a guy this week, and he said, Bobby says, I talked to my pastor, and he says, I'm not getting anything there. He says, I'm not growing. He says, I'm trying to get help for my own situation, and, and they won't help me. And so I went in and talked to him, and he said, I told my pastor that I was seriously thinking of going to another church to get what I needed. And the pastor told me this. He said, he says, well, you can go to another church if you want. That's up to you, he says, but you need to understand this. If you leave this church and go to another church, you'll lose all your reward that the gentleman seat of Christ forever. <laughs> Sound familiar to you? And I thought, what he said, and he, and, he was, and he asked me, he says, Bob, is that true? I can't tell you my answer because there's kids here. <laughs> I thought to myself, what an egotistical idiot for somebody to think that their church is the only church. And if you leave this church and go to another church, you know what that is? That's Baptist Catholicism. Amen. How many of you were former Catholics before you got saved? You know what? You know what they told you? They told you, you ever left this church, you can never go to heaven. This guy's a Baptist, and he's telling him, if you ever leave this church, you can do it, but you'll lose all your rewards in the judgment seat of Christ. That is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. But you know what? That's where people are at today. They got to control you. They got to keep you. I'd be the first to tell you, this church isn't for everybody. I never pretended it is. I'm looking for a special kind of, somebody said, well, I'm looking for a special kind of church. That's good. I'm looking for a special kind of person. I said that to a guy one time, and he said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, the same thing you meant. <laughs> you know, people are nuts. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> I had a guy call me one time on the phone. He said, we're thinking about coming to your church. And I said, well, that would be good. We have Sunday morning services and Bible study on Thursday night. He said, may I ask you some questions? I said, sure. He said, what do you, what do you believe about this? I told him. What do you do with this? I told him. What do you believe with this? I told him. I said, he's how do you, I said, I told him. And so he was done. He said, why well, I I said, could I ask a couple questions? I said, how many times you read your Bible through last year? You got just as quiet as it is now. I wanted to ask him the big one. Do you tithe? But that would have really put him over the top. Not that I could care less. And I asked him a bunch of serious, I said, when's the last time you won somebody to Christ? I said, you, your kid's all saved? He got offended. He said, well, it looks like I won't be coming to your church. I said, yeah, probably not. You know, it's okay for you to ask me what we're all about, but I can't find out what you're all about. You say, well, maybe I don't like your church. Maybe we don't like you. 
people are nuts, man. Now you wonder why I got four dogs? Now you know. What do you think about it, buddy? <laughs> Me too. Me too. And I'll be up front with you. The church isn't for everybody. I never pretend that it is. I'm a step, I have my certain style. Some people like it. Some people don't. I have my way I do things. Some people like it. Some people don't. I, I, you know, in weird church, we follow a format. Some people like it. Some people don't. I've had people say, well, I would never go to a church that doesn't have a Sunday night service. Well, that's good because we won't be here. <laughs> I'd hate to be in that parking lot alone, especially the lights off. You may get mugged. Not the best part of town. But it's a thing where, you know, it, it, it's so crazy to me that people think that, that you can just pay for learning the Bible, put out money on the table. I've had people actually call for counseling that had marital problems, and they say how much it cost. And when I told them it didn't cost anything, they say, well, then I don't want it. Because they don't think if it costs something, it isn't worth anything. So you know what I tell them now? I'm smarter than the problem. You know what I tell them now? I said, I said, they'll say, well, uh, you know, well, what does it cost? They said, it doesn't cost anything. They said, it doesn't cost anything. I said, no. I said, I have all kinds of people in the church. When I just say that there's somebody coming in, they want you to get right, they're going to pay your tuition for you. And you do. You pay your tithe offering here. It pays my salary, pays everything. So I'm doing half lying to them. <laughs> hey, I get it. Lying's an abomination in the sight of God. A very present help in a time of trouble. Put those two verses together for you. Next verse, verse 17. Now, here we go. I'm going to get real personal here now. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. This is our sixth and final one. Now, this verse is a special one to me. It's special because it defines for me what a true friend is, or what I need to be to be a true friend to somebody. And uh, there's... uh, Nine, eight or nine aspects here. Eight aspects, I guess there is. And the first thing that, that I want to say to you is that a brother that, is, uh, that loveth at all times and is born for adversity is somebody that will stick with you through thick and thin. I don't care what it is. You have friends in life that <clears throat> we call them fair weather friends, you know, that they're with you when uh, things are good and, and maybe stick with you when things can go kind of not so good. But when really things fall apart in your life, they're not there for you. A real friend will stand up for you when you're weak, when you can't stand up for yourself. You know there's a time in all of our lives when we're not strong. You know what a real friend is? Someone that will pick you up and hold you up when you can't stand up on your own. A real friend that loveth at all times and a brother born for adversity is someone that loves you unconditionally, not when you do something for them or not necessarily when you're doing right, but they love you when you don't do what's right. See, the love they have is so deep and it goes beyond so much that they can't, they just can't, they can't move out their love for you based on what you do. I mean, the verse says, a friend loveth at all times. A real friend that loveth at all times will fight for you when you can't fight for yourself. There'll be times, maybe because of your own doing or just because of what you're going through, that you don't have any fight left in you. And a real friend is someone who will fight for you when you simply cannot fight 
any longer for yourself. Someone that will say to you, you know what? If we go down, we're going down together. A real friend that born for adversity will always help you, but they'll never hurt you. Someone who loves you at all times, no matter what. Someone that doesn't need to be told what you need, but loves you so much and is so understanding in what God has given you that you see the need. You can be driving in the parking lot, or you can be walking down the street, walking down the steps, and somebody see the countenance on your face and come up and say, everything okay? Yes. See? Someone who is born to go through adversity with you that will sometimes have to carry you when you can't, can't walk on your own. You know, in life you don't find very many friends like that. One of the things I've always appreciated about the military, going back to all wars, I guess, certainly even now, is the concept of the bond that men who have shared the rigors of combat have with each other. Back in the 90s, Stephen Ambrose wrote a book which was made into a movie that everybody understands and knows today as The Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers originally was a book that was written about the 506th Parachute Infantry Division in World War II that was part of the 101st Airborne, uh, in particular, Easy Company, E Company. It followed their life from where they first went in in Camp Tioga in Georgia, all through the war, <clears throat> all the way to, to uh, Austria at the end of the war, where they, they all got disbanded and came home. And the movie was simply called the Band of Brothers. And you couldn't watch that miniseries without understanding what I'm talking about. That these guys went through the rigors of real combat. Sharing the misery, the fear, the death, and the friendship, the good times and the bad times. From the foxholes in Bastogne, where it was 20 below zero when they had no warm clothes and were there for two, three weeks at a time with no food, many of them sick, to the three-day passes they had together in London. You know, those guys after that, as all combat guys, 60, 70 years before they died, they were friends forever. I remember one time <clears throat> I heard One of the Band of Brothers guys, he was talking and he said, you know, everybody thinks that we're heroes. And he said, my, my granddaughter, who's about six years old, saw the movie Band of Brothers and he was played by somebody in it. And my granddaughter looked up at me and she said, Grandpa, were you a hero in that war? And tears welled up in his eyes and he said, no, sweetheart, I, I wasn't a hero. 
but I served with a company of heroes. And you see, when you go through something like that, it puts it in perspective. You know who you are, and you know who God has given you. The concept of band of brothers, most people don't even know this, goes back to, I don't know, 1400, 1415 with, with Henry V. They were getting ready to go against France, and they were greatly outnumbered. Shakespeare picked it up a couple hundred years later and put it into one of his plays. You found the phrase being used. The battle was called St. Christmas Day in 1415, October 25th, I believe it was. And he went before his troops. And he gave them this incredible speech about how that they were a band of brothers, and even though they were outnumbered, they would prevail this day. And they won the battle. It's been used down through history many, many times. At, at the end of the movie, in the final chapter of the Band of Brothers, where <clears throat> the German general is, is surrendering all his troops to the Americans, he asks Lieutenant Winters if he can speak to his men. And he says, yes. He quotes from Shakespeare. It's a true, it's a true story. He says, but... He told them what a good, how that they fought for their country. We've lost in defeat. Hold your head high. Go home to your families. Rebuild your lives. And he said this. But we in it shall be remembered, we few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For this day, he who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And in the ministry, he and she who puts your life on the line for the ministry is my brother. And I'm telling you, this element is very frankly what makes everything you deal with that's negative and turns it into a positive. When somebody gives you somebody special in your ministry that understands and fulfills these things and you labor together, you work together, you go through the good times, the tough times, the people that reward evil for good. When you see the people that God gives you, it just makes all of that just go away. The friends you have that get your heart, get your mind, and get your vision. And together as a band of brothers that is born for adversity, for the work of God, they become the gold standard for the ministry. You know, I was thinking about this, just to leave it in perspective here. Back in the 1850s, they found gold out in California at a place called Sutter's Mill. And it, it launched what was commonly called the California Gold Rush. Everybody from everywhere went to California. And uh, they were trying to build gold mines, you know, and the, and, the, and the easiest way to pan gold was to go down by a river, take you a, a round sifting pan like that, go down to the river, put dirt in it, then go over to a trough with running water, hold that running water on it and shift it back and forth. All the dirt would fall through, the water would wash it through, and in time, if you stayed with it long enough when you washed that, all that out and pushed all the dirt out and put it all through there, 
there would be a nugget of gold. And as I thought about that, I thought to myself, you know, that's really the concept of all that we do in the ministry. That's the concept of a brother being born for adversity. Some of it will stick with you, the bond that we have. And I thought, you know what? The thing that makes for me the ministry what it is in the highlight of my life is the nuggets of gold that have showed up in that pan. But you know what? Sometimes you got to shift a lot of dirt to find one nugget. I guarantee you there wasn't a guy that shifted for gold that when he found that golden nugget ever complained about how much dirt he had to shift to get it. And when you understand that the ministry has to be sometimes shifting through the dirt to find the gold nugget, it'll make it worth it all.